Welcome to The Compass, a podcast ministry of Calvary Baptist Church of Fayetteville, Arkansas. We're thrilled that you've chosen to download and listen as we share from God's Word. Let me take this opportunity to invite you to join us for worship on Sundays at 1030 a.m. at 1410 North Porter Road of Fayetteville, Arkansas. Now, if you have questions about the Word or about our ministry here in Fayetteville, you can reach us a couple of different ways. Call us at 479 442 4634 or email us at info at On today's podcast, we are continuing a series from Ephesians called Rags to Riches. Today's message is entitled Greetings from God and is from Ephesians chapter 1 verses 1 and 2. Let's listen together. As you know, we are starting a study of the of Paul's letter to the Ephesians, the epistle to the Ephesians. And if any of you were wondering, are the epistles the wives of the apostles? Well, no. An epistle is a letter. And so this uh, book of Ephesians, was that over your head? (laughs) Or was it just so absolutely corny it wasn't worth your effort? Okay. Well, anyway, Paul's letter to the Ephesians. What we've heard this morning, even already, is about during these very difficult times uh, and times around the world where it's much more difficult than it is for you and me here. Because of the technology we have, the ministry can continue on in creative and inventive ways. Aren't you thankful for that? Uh, You know, there used to be a time when a, a written letter was all that you could have to communicate with people far away. I remember my grandparents growing up in their home in Mountain View, Arkansas, and, and talking about when, when their oldest son, my uncle Jacob, who later became a pastor, was, uh, was serving in the Navy in the South Pacific, and his ship was fired upon, torpedoed, and sunk. And they heard about the sinking of his ship through the news but did not know for more than a month whether or not he was alive until a letter finally came in the mail. And yet, for you and me today, can you even remember the last time that you wrote a letter or that you received a letter that at least wasn't some kind of form letter, someone wanting to sell you some kind of home warranty or car warranty or something like that? It's just not a way we communicate anymore. We have so many other speedy ways. We have email. We have texting. We have cell phones that in a matter of an instant, you can dial a number, and without even going through an operator, you can talk to someone half a world away. I remember my grandmother carrying those letters around in her apron and taking them out and rereading them from time to time because they were so meaningful. I've got such a letter. I actually have three or four in my possession, but this is one that was in my desk drawer. I don't know. You probably cannot see it from there. It is uh, obviously a child's writing, and it is from five-year-old Jonathan Lord. This is almost 30 years ago. It was at a time when Jonathan's mom and dad were a part of us starting a brand new church that started in our living room and then later moved to a a hotel meeting room. And this is what Jonathan wrote to me. 
with all the misspelling, I'll try to interpret it. Dear Brother Kirk, I hope you are having fun preaching. Preaching, I like that. At Grace Fellowship at the Travel Lodge. And I like playing with your children. And I like playing with your daughter, Kim. Kim sitting in the balcony today. I don't know if she remembers playing with Jonathan when he was just a wee little guy. And I like you preaching at church. I will always be your best buddy. Your buddy, Jonathan. Jonathan is about 6'4 today. Weighs about 280. Has two kids of his own. But I'll always treasure that letter from Jonathan. Well, a letter like that, especially in the old days, was kind of like what Proverbs 25, 25 says, when it says, like cold water to a thirsty soul, so is good news from a far country. Like cold water to a thirsty soul, so is good news from a far country. Joe, the news you share with us from Lebanon, as difficult as it is where you serve, is like a cold drink of water to us and refreshing to know how God is using people like yourself in far countries, places where most of us will never go in our lifetimes. But yet we see and we hear of how God is working in other places. Well, such a letter came to this group of believers living in Ephesus almost 2,000 years ago. They were living in a very worldly, anti-Christian city. The city of Ephesus and the man writing to them was the Apostle Paul. You see, Paul had brought the gospel to this city a number of years before. He had come there not necessarily planning to, but because God had hindered some other directions he wanted to go, he continued to move straight ahead and ended up in this place, a place that maybe he had had no plans or agenda. But remember, when we are surrendered to the Lord Jesus Christ, the agenda and the plans and the schedule is always on his terms. Amen? And he has the prerogative to change our plans. He has the prerogative to adjust our schedules. He has the prerogative of taking us places maybe that we would never dream of going. And when Paul came to this place and when he preached there, it caused such an uproar in this very urban, very modern, very large city. So many people were getting saved that they were walking away from the, the main industry in town, which was making idols out of silver. And they saw that now that we're saved, we can't make idols anymore. So they left their profession. It was damaging the economy of the entire city and the entire region. And so it was causing a real uproar. One evangelist once said that when the gospel begins to take root, it will either result in revival or a riot. And in some cases, in Ephesus' case, 
it resulted in both. There was great revival. There was a great move of God. But at the same time, there was a great riot. Over the space of a number of years, Paul visited Ephesus several times. He actually ministered there longer in that place than he ever stayed in any other single place that we have recorded. By the time this letter was written to them, almost 10 years had passed since he had last been there. Paul writes this letter under house arrest in Rome. It was his first Roman imprisonment. He would face another later. Ephesus was more than 800 miles from Rome as the crow flies. But as you know, nothing goes by way of crow. You either go by land or you go by sea. That's the way you go. And it was hundreds of miles more in either of those cases. So as he writes this letter, it is a very risky proposition in that day and time, whether your letter would ever arrive at its destination. But the same God who is inspiring these words, who is the true author of these words, is the God who is going to preserve these words and get them to their intended destination. And not only that, but preserve them for you and me. And so today, we want to look at only two verses the first two verses of chapter 1. Now, Paul's letters all follow a similar pattern. He opens with some kind of greeting or salutation. We are tempted to kind of, you know, skim over those words, thinking of them as formalities and niceties, and going on to the meat of the message or the meat of the letter. But I want to suggest to you that this salutation is just as inspired as the rest of it. That this greeting doesn't come actually from the Apostle Paul. It comes through the Apostle Paul, but it is coming from God. And that's why I have named this message Greetings from God. This is what God is saying to this church. Let's read those first two verses. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. So let's see what it has to say to us. Now I want to suggest to you that even in the greeting. Even in the salutation, even in the formality of introducing this great letter from the Apostle Paul from God's throne, even the greeting is rich in theological truth, in practical application, and in challenge for your life to mine. If we were to reduce those two verses down to as few words as possible, it might be said in this way. The messenger to the members from the master. The messenger to the members from the messenger. And those are our points. Let me walk through them very quickly in the time we have left. The messenger. The messenger. This is the sender of the letter. It is the Apostle Paul. As I've already said, he's not the author of these words. He is the transmitter 
of these words. He is the messenger that bears the message. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God. I hope you understand and can sympathize with the predicament that the apostle Paul was in. While he is in prison in Rome, hundreds of miles away, feeling the responsibility for the spiritual well-being of this church that he started, realizing he had left them in the hands of good leaders, but also recognizing he still had a responsibility to them and for them. But what in the world could he do? He can't just snap his fingers and be there. He can't just pick up his cell phone and give them a call. He can't even send them a, a, an email or a text. He can't get to them. Listen to what Brian Chappelle from Covenant Theological Seminary said. Not only is their culture opposed to the message of God's covenant love, but the covenant people, the Jews, are opposed to the Gentiles receiving that message also. In other words, you find that, that the culture is opposed to the church, but also the Jews, the religious Jews, are opposed to this Gentile church. They are opposed to them receiving this message. Immense barriers of cultural, historical, and racial differences confront the apostle. And what could he do about it? He is in prison under Roman guard. We would understand if Paul simply said, I give up, Lord. The obstacles are greater than I. You'll just have to find someone else. Yet Paul refuses to quit because he recognizes that his strength to face the obstacles lies in provisions beyond him. His strength, did you get that? He realizes he doesn't give up because he realizes that his strength to face the obstacles that are before him, they lie beyond him. There are provisions that he has to help him do his job as an apostle that are beyond his limitations. Well, what are those provisions? They are two, and he says it in that first phrase. They are God's Word and they are God's will. God's Word and God's will. God's Word is wrapped up in the statement, Paul, an apostle, a messenger, Paul, an appointed messenger from Jesus Christ. I am from the Lord himself, and I am writing by the will and direction of God. So he has God's word behind him. God's word had called him. He was rampaging Saul on the road to Damascus to persecute Christians, emboldened by his participation in the persecution and execution of Stephen in Acts chapter 7 back in Jerusalem. Now he has papers. He's an official representative of the Sanhedrin court and the high court and the Jewish leaders of Jerusalem. And he's on his way to Damascus to persecute Christians there when God intervenes in his life and calls him to be his disciple 
to uh, the nations, particularly the Gentile nations. Saul, named after the king of the Old Testament that made all the wrong choices, who was a great man, who stood head and shoulders above all the others, became Paul, whose name in the Greek literally means a small one, a humble one. He went from arrogant Saul to humble Paul so that he might preach the gospel by the power of God. God's word is behind him. He has God's word as his resource. And as he pens these words, he is under the inspiration of the Spirit who is speaking those words to his heart. And that Spirit of God is allowing Paul's personality and Paul's vocabulary to come through while at the same time he is protecting him from any kind of error as he transmits the very words from God to this church. So he had God's word. But he had also God's will. Paul didn't choose to be an apostle. God chose him. The will of God was his defense when he spoke. He didn't have to apologize for his words because God had redeemed him, had corrected him, and commissioned him, and claimed him. He had a right to speak to kings and commoners alike. Now here's the deal, folks. You and I can say, well, you know what? That's the apostle Paul. And it's true that he was a called apostle for a particular job at a particular time. But listen to me, every last one of you, please hear what I'm about to say. The resources and the authority that the Apostle Paul had, God's Word and God's will, are available to you and me as well. We are are God's messengers for our appointed time. If we needed the Apostle Paul today, God would have left the Apostle Paul here. But he didn't. And instead, we have Stephen and Garland and Donya and Amanda and Amy and David and Joey and others. We are the messengers of God. We are the people of God. And we don't make up our message and we don't make up our words. We speak the word of God by the will of God. And guess what? The responsibility then is for God to do with it what he chooses to do. Are you available to the Lord? Just as the messenger was, you are the messenger today. You got it? You got it? We'll wait to go on to point number two. I can keep elaborating on point number one, or we can hurry on to point number You got it? All right, got it. Good. Number two, the messenger to the members, the recipients. What were they members of? They were the members of the church at Ephesus. How did they do membership? I'm not sure I understand all of that. But I know this, they were the target audience. They were the members of this church. They were members of the body of Christ in Ephesus. In the oldest manuscripts of this letter, it does not say Ephesians. It is not that specific. It's believed that this was a circular letter, that it most definitely was for the Ephesians because it was taken to them. 
and later manuscripts identified them, but that it also went to surrounding churches such as the church at Laodicea, such as uh, some other churches around the area of where Ephesus was located. This was written specifically to the Ephesian believers, but guess what? It was applicable to other believers. Guess what? It was written to Calvary Baptist Church in Fayetteville, Arkansas. It was written as much to us as to anybody. We are the members. We are the recipients. Notice how he said it in the second part of verse 1. To the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Now I know what somebody here is thinking, and I'm not going to identify you. You're thinking, well, that could not be the Calvary Baptist Church because it says to the saints, and there ain't no saints around here. <laughs> yes, there are. Yes, there are. Does it seem strange to you that Paul would address these people as saints? I mean, he, he could have said, to the believers... He could have said to the Christians. He could have said to the Christ followers. He could have said to the disciples that are there at Ephesus, but he called them saints. Oftentimes we use that expression about somebody that is, first of all, old. Secondly, is very sweet. And we say, oh, sister so-and-so, she is just a saint. Well, I'm going to tell you something. That little rotten primary school-age kid that is just pushing all of your buttons, he's a saint too if he knows the Lord. You see, we have the idea that saints are dead people who, has a, who have achieved some kind of spiritual prominence that they've been given a special title. You know, like a Saint Christopher or a St. Francis, or a St. Nicholas, and we could go on and name many others. But this word from the New Testament, this word saints, has received and suffered more distortion than maybe any word in all of the Bible. Did you know that? Even the dictionary defines saint as a person officially recognized for holiness of life. Officially recognized for doing what and by whom? How does this happen? It happens when a religious body carefully examines a deceased person's life to see whether he or she qualifies for sainthood. If the candidate's character and conduct are deemed to be above reproach, and if he or she is responsible for working at least two miracles, then that person is qualified to be a saint. And as interesting as all of that is, guess what? You can't find it anywhere in the Bible. The Bible never says that. 
The Bible never describes that. The Bible never defines that. The Bible never gives the criteria. The Bible uses the word saint countless times in Scripture and nine times in just this short letter to the Ephesians. And it always is synonymous with being a Jesus Christ believer. Not in someone who is above any kind of reproach. Not someone who is sinless in their conduct. Not someone who is working miracles. These people were alive. They were not dead. Now if you read chapter 2, you're going to find they had been dead, but now made alive spiritually. (laughs) These people had never performed any miracles, but they had all experienced the miracle of the new birth, and the Lord called them saints. It's simply a New Testament word for a follower of Jesus Christ. Like believers, disciples, Christians, one of the others you find a couple of times in the book of Acts, people of the way, of a way of life, a Christian way of life. How did these people become saints? Very simple. It is so simple that we stumble all over it. They were faithful. Notice, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful, have faith in Christ Jesus. That's how they became a saint. How many of you have faith in Jesus Christ today as your Savior? Would you raise your hand? How many of you trust Christ as your Savior? Come on, you're in the balcony too. You trust Christ as your Savior? All right, you're a saint. You're a saint. Go ahead and turn to the person next to you and refer to them as Saint Amanda or, you know, Saint Justin. That sounds kind of biblical, doesn't it? Go ahead and refer to one another as a saint. That's what you are. If you have faith in Christ, you've been made a saint. What is that faithfulness? It is a simple trust and belief in Jesus as your Savior. Isn't that right, Saint Nadine? I like that. One other thing before I kind of start to wind this up with the last point. If you, uh, well, let me just just go ahead and go to the last point. Uh, A message, the messenger to the members from the master. That's point number three. This is the source of this letter. The source is the master. It says in verse two, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And God begins his message. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. What is grace? It is unmerited favor. It is favor shown to you that you do not merit. You do not deserve it. You did not earn it. You did not achieve it. It is favor that comes your way that is undeserved. That's grace. God's grace to you and me. It is, it's used 12 times in this epistle, this letter. Grace is a, is a major theme. It is often coupled with mercy, grace and mercy. And, and those are like two sides of a coin. Grace is to get what you don't deserve, God's favor. Mercy is to not get what you do deserve, and that is judgment. Did you get that? 
Grace is to get what you don't deserve. Mercy is to not get what you do deserve. And I'm so thankful for grace and mercy. But here the apostle says, grace and peace. Peace has reference to all blessings flowing from the goodness of God to our lives. All blessings flowing from the goodness of God to our lives. Let me tell you one quick thing about what Paul is doing here. In his day, the common Greek or Roman um, method of acknowledging uh, another person, of greeting another person, was to say, rejoice. Now that sounds like a spiritual term, but it wasn't the way that it was used. In Roman and Greek culture, rejoice. The idea is you live under Roman uh, rule. That is something to be thankful for. Rejoice. And the word peace was the common Jewish greeting. The common Jewish greeting. Rejoice was how the Western world, the Roman world, greeted. Peace was how the Eastern world, the Jewish world, greeted. Paul put both of those together, and then he tweaked the first one. Instead of saying rejoice, he changed it to the word grace. Now, listen, in the Greek language, they sound very similar. He's kind of doing a play on words, but at the same time, he is giving us some deep spiritual truth. Grace and peace. Not rejoice in peace, but grace, God's goodness, God's undeserved favor shown to you and me. And peace, the source of all great blessings. He is saying, he is making one the Western greeting, grace. The other, he is acknowledging the Jewish Eastern greeting. He is standing uh, in Rome, but he is writing to believers in Ephesus. And Ephesus sits almost on the very line that separates the Eastern world, the Asian world, from the Western world, the European world. And he says to these people who are right in the midst of both east and west. He is saying grace and peace and it is a uniquely Christian greeting. A uniquely supreme Christian greeting. It is also how the gospel works. First of all comes grace. Then comes peace. There can be no peace without grace. And when grace comes, it brings peace to your heart. Grace and peace. This is what God is saying to this church. One last thing before drawing it to a close. I want you to notice in those two short verses the very Christ-centeredness of all of it. The Christ-centeredness of all of it. In verse 1a, he says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. In the very rest, uh, next part of verse 1, to the faithful who are in Christ Jesus, the saints who are faithful in Christ Jesus. And in verse 2, he refers to the Lord Jesus Christ, the source of all grace and 
peace of Christ Jesus, in Christ Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ is a term meaning Messiah, the Messiah, the office of who he is. Jesus is the New Testament version of Joshua, of the Old Testament. It means God is salvation. That was Jesus' name. That was his given name. He was the Messiah, and God is our salvation. That's who he was, Christ Jesus. But then Paul adds then the other title, Lord Jesus Christ. That's a personal decision. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. But He's only Lord to you if you acknowledge Him as such. And you know what? All of you will. Everyone in the world will. The Bible tells us in Philippians, everyone is going to bow the knee and confess that He is Lord. The difference is those who do it here in this life will spend an eternity with him in the next life. Those that refuse to do it in this life are likely to be separated from him for all eternity in the next life. How is it with you? You see, Jesus Christ needs to be the center of our lives. I know that everybody here, everybody, we want Christ in and around our lives, do we not? I mean, after all, we, we want to know that we're His children. We want to know that we're going to heaven. We want and need Him to bless our lives. We all want that. But oftentimes, we want that while not being willing to acknowledge Him as the Lord and Master of our lives. We want Him on the periphery of our lives with all of His blessings, but we don't want Him on the throne at the center of our lives in the place where everything else finds alignment around Him. You see, we don't want Him oftentimes to change our worldly values and our standards. We want to still be in control we want to still be in the driver's seat. We want to make our plans and have our agendas. We just want God to bless it. It just doesn't work that way, folks. It's not until He's on the throne of your lives and all those other things begin to take alignment from Him that things begin to make sense. And that's why I say to you, only with Christ at the center of our lives will life make any sense at all. Amen? Well, guess what? That's just the salutation to this letter. That's just the introduction. That's just the greeting. That's the messenger, Paul. The members, the saints at Ephesus, from the Master of the Lord Jesus Christ. The message, that really cranks up in verse 3. And we'll get into that next time. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this wonderful book. And I pray that you would create a hunger and thirst in our hearts for it. Father, if we do not have any other book of the Bible, what you've written...
through your apostle to the Ephesians would be sufficient for our lives. Father, I just pray that you would help us to put you at the center of our lives. Pray that you would help us to find a confidence in who you are as our Savior, but even more as our Lord. Father, we thank you for what we were able to see and hear in this place today. I pray that every word that we've sung, every word that we've prayed, everything that was discussed and talked about in the video that we saw, that it has honored and glorified you. I pray that we will be faithful to leave here more aware of and committed to your great calling in life. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Our heart's desire is that you grow and understand the direction God has for you in your life. We hope that by listening today, you are one step closer to discovering that for yourself. If you live in Northwest Arkansas and are looking for a church to call your own, we invite you to reach out to us at Calvary as we study and serve together. We meet for worship at 1030 on Sunday mornings at 1410 North Porter Road in Fayetteville, Arkansas. If you wish to find out more information about Calvary Church or simply contact us, you can do that through our Facebook page or at calvaryfayetteville.com. Until next time, remember that God, His Word, and His people can provide direction for life.